Tracy's not here. Karen's not here. Is that it? So e either they're not, they are big wimps, or we're stupid. <laughs> Something. <laughs> what? Oh, you, I don't even want to, I, I mean, that to me is such a big, we were in New Hampshire for four or five years when I took up a teaching position at uh, Magdalen College, and I didn't, I, I, we had been at, in uh, Chicago once for a fellowship I had for a year there, and that was my, my first experience out of California, and I was stunned at how cold it was, but but the weather in New Hampshire made the weather in Chicago look like it was sunny. I, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. The, the winters go on forever, and then after the winters, you've got, you've got, yeah, yeah, true. You got, you, you got, you've got three or four months of what, what you can only call wet season. I mean, nine months of the year, it's either freezing or wet, and mosquitoes are, God, it's just awful. So you might have, you might have three or four months of warmth, but. Um, Anyway, um, after that, be, um, that experience in New Hampshire, when, when we came here to Texas, it was a, I mean, we'd gone from California to New Hampshire to here. It was so, in, in, in uh, New Hampshire, there was one day when I got stranded several miles from the college and was not dressed warm enough, the, the, the car stopped and they had to come tow it and mm -hmm. the guy wanted to drop me off because he had other calls. So I had about a, two-mile walk, I had on a, a parka, a, um, a, a workout, you know, jacket, one no, of the light. Like a sweat jacket. Not, yeah, but it was not the nylon. cotton, it was nylon, yeah. Nylon, yeah. Out on the road, um, a woman who stopped called a 911 and the guy came to pick up my car. Anyway, he took me and he said, can I drop you off here because I've got other calls. So it was at the exit, I had two miles to walk. I, I mean, I was freezing, absolutely freezing. Oh, I'm not kidding, freezing. The school bus passed me by <laughs> as I was walking, and all the kids were going, Dr. Alexander, Dr. Alexander. <laughs> I, was going, I was going, wait, wait, wait. And they kept waving. <laughs> the next day, I was ticked off. I, I said to the academic dean, did you not read the parable about the, the wounded guy, you know, when everybody's passing him? And her response to me, her response to me is, "You Californians are so sensitive, <laughs> so so sensitive, so tender." <laughs> so when we came here to Texas, and there was an inch of snow, and we, you're right, and the schools closed down. I mean, all we could do is, we're like, the New Hampshire's looking at Californians. <laughs> These tough Texans, what yeah. big wimps! A half an inch of snow, and the clo the schools are closed. Okay. Nobody drives. They're already closing schools now. <laughs> right, they're right, on TV right, now. right. <laughs> so I have no sympathies for. <laughs> God, after you've lived in New Hampshire for four years, it's. So they're shutting down for tomorrow. Yeah. Yes, and I, I mean, I grew up in Kansas, and the, so. You know, we, I was say, well, first time I came here, and there was just a little bit of. I, I remember one ice storm. They're shutting down. And we were driving down the road, and and my husband, he wasn't feeling well, so I was driving, and he kind of had his eyes closed. And all of a sudden, he hears this noise, and he goes, 
what the heck? And he's looking around and I'm going, and he's just chains. And he goes, chains where? <laughs> and I was going, I was going, they have chains on their tires. He goes, really? Let me see. <laughs> this is in a half inch snow. Because he, he grew up in Laredo, so the thought of putting chains on tires was something. He yeah. Really yeah. The other, the other, the other, the other dimension that makes this so so comic to me, so so funny. When we first came, California, New Hampshire, here, we ran into the, what I would call this Texas male culture with trucks on the road everywhere, and wherever we'd go, the the young men or the men would say, "Sir." I mean, I mean, there's this sort of manly code of honor here that you. I mean, it just does. There's nothing close to that in California. No. But you have all these, all these big trucks. I mean, to be a Texan means you have to have a truck. The neighbor across the street, who's a who's an anesthesiologist, bought a truck, and the response of his friends at the hospital was, "Oh, I see, you got a girly truck," because it wasn't one of these big stud <laughs> trucks. Anyway, so. An inch, half an inch of snow comes out, and, and the streets are bare because all these tough Texans with their trucks are in the garage. It's We're just all glad that they are because they don't know how to drive. That's right. That's right. Don't want to kill you. Pickup truck empty. That's true. Right. They don't. They don't understand that. If it's bad tomorrow, does that mean I can't go to the casino? <laughs> well, I'm serious. I was gonna go. There you go. Just just put some just put some heavy rocks in the back seat and tell them. I used to drive. used to call me when I was out when when even before mobile would close down. People knew they would you know. They would, they would call me up and say, are you going in? And I would end up, will you pick me up? I, and I had five I had five people that would, you know, because they, they don't know how to drive. I mean, they really don't. Yeah, it's you know, true. My, my dad always, when I guess when he came, when I moved down to Texas, he always said, beware of flatlanders. Or, <laughs> <laughs> yep. He was Pennsylvania in the mountains. He, yeah. He drove it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it was, I can, I, I bowled and... I mean, it, it was my one break from school, so I took it. So there would be blizzard conditions, and I would drive from Magdalen, you know, I don't know, 20 miles into blizzard conditions, and the cars were going three miles an hour, or the trucks, or, and I did that weekly. Um, in fact, one, <laughs> this is, I, I've got to stop, because, but it's too funny. On one of the mornings when the snowdrift was so high, it must have been six feet or you know, the, the plows come in in the morning and clear the roads, but you have to clear your driveway and, unless you pay somebody. Everybody, everybody at Maglin took a bet that I would not show up on that morning. And it, I mean, I, that, how little they knew me. I mean, I was there. Nobody, none of the Maglin teachers were there. One of the guys, because we were on an incline to get to the school, one of the guys got halfway up and it got icy. He turned around and went home. <laughs> but they took bets. This guy from California is just not going to be here. <laughs> funny. Just funny. Let's... <laughs> Wait, she, she knows the truth of that. We, we went to Illinois and... and we had a $15,000 stipend, which was a fortune back then, and we, yeah. we were going to save $5,000. That was as much money we'd ever seen. It was early in our marriage, and $15,000, because we were really, I, I grew up pretty much poor, and 
Suzanne grew up in better circumstances, but when we got married, we we lived from hand to mouth for ages. Put the money in us in a CD account and took off. And but before we went, she had gone to Northwestern, so she knew the cold. And she she said to me, "You've got to dress warmly because my only experience of cold was on television." <laughs> No, I mean, think, I just, the irony of that so strikes me. You look at it, you can watch God. this and not experience it, but you think you know snow. There it is. <laughs> and me being who I am, because I get really stickly about money. I mean, I just am so careful about not wasting things. It just, my mother, my grandmother was from the old country. It's just, I didn't get anything. I said, I've got sweaters, I've got a jacket, I'll be fine. I, I, I mean, my attitude was sort of to tough it through whatever it was. We got to Kansas City and her aunt, who had a clothing store, said, Bob, this isn't going to do. She bought me one of those gray um, overcoats with a fur inner liner. She gave it to me. Said, You're not I didn't want it. I was a little bit embarrassed because I said, I don't need this. <laughs> we got to Champaign-Urbana to the university, and on that particular winter, and this is so ironic, it, it was a record freeze. People died overnight. Yeah. I mean, it was a record. This was in 76. It was a record winter. People were dying. They closed down the school. I remember going out the door one day with my jacket and sweaters, and Suzanne, she kept saying, you've got to have a hat because that's where you lose most of your heat. And I said, nonsense. I'll, I went out. Two minutes later, I was back, <laughs> put a hat on my head, and nothing, you know. And I can remember walking down the street towards the university, absolute with sweaters, a jacket, the overcoat that her aunt had bought me, and something on my head. I, and I can remember looking across the street to what I thought was a native Illinoisan, because he was walking as if nothing were around him. I mean, he just walked straight. I can, I can remember feeling like I was half crawling. <laughs> just was, and it just made me aware of, of um, what, what regions of our countries do to help form character because he was obviously so much tougher and because he was used to it that I was as a Californian and um, and I that was a real eye-opener for me that what different areas of the country do because you grow up with different climate conditions and <laughs> you need to go to Russia and carry a bottle of vodka <laughs> <laughs> Let's start. Are there any any prayer requests here? I'm going to include Jesse, if it's okay. Jesse, yeah, Jesse is, is is going to start gene therapy. They finally have decided that he he qualifies as a candidate. That I spoke to him yesterday, I guess it was. So he's going to uh, he's looking forward to it. It means that he doesn't oh, have to go to Chicago good. often for good. Uh, good. for uh, other treatments and hope they're. They're giving him some hope, but uh, of course, it's you know, there's a lot of still a lot of residual see, yeah. problems yeah. that, that yeah. you know he's face going to face. But, but good, that's good news. That's good news yeah. for for a change. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you, Lord, again for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass. We carry your kingdom within us. Um, I will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us be in all that we do with each other as it is in your kingdom. 
um, against ourselves, to be perfectly courteous, to live in your truth, your justice, your mercy, all of it. Um, even where we see glimpses of you here, so often it's broken up and fragmented. Some people um, are um, wonderful at giving um, a compassion, others justice, but pulling you all together is not an easy thing. Help us to do that, um, particularly in all that we do with each other, to grow in our trust of you, to bring that to all that we do with each other. Um, ask a special blessing, a grace on um, those who are carrying burdens, Tracy, with Madison, um, um, keep Tracy hopeful, don't let her discour get discouraged by what she's doing with that young girl. Be with Tom and Linda with their daughter in the efforts that she's making to pull herself together, strengthen her, encourage her. Um, for every step that she makes, wanting to get better, um, give her a strength um, to continue with it. It's for a blessing on Christopher and Kayla and all their efforts they're making, watch over them. Um, be with Jesse and this new approach he's taking to his illness. All of us carry concerns um, with ourselves and our families. In everything we do, help us to grow in the gifts that you offer us, your faith, your hope, your, your love. Hope isn't real unless it, um, we have no reason for hoping anymore. Faith isn't real unless we have no reason for having it. It takes us so beyond ourselves. Help us to open ourselves to those gifts. Most especially to love when we have no reason for loving. Those are the gifts that brought you here to us. Help us to take them to each other. I ask a special blessing on the work we do here together in our reading. Thank you for all that you do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Okay. Um, a couple of things from last week that I, I just want to keep um, on everybody's mind as we go forward because they're going to continue to um, um, to enrich the story as we go forward. Um, because they're a part of the whole action. So um, I want to um, go back on touching a couple of things that we talked about last week. And I, um, I hope I can be a little bit clearer this week than I was last week. Um, in the shift from the hamlet to the town, we're moving from a pastoral, agrarian, Arcadian world. Arcadi, Arcadia, um, for those of you who may not know it, is an old Greek myth. It's like Atlantis. Arcadi was um, thought to be this idealized pastoral world where um, people didn't carry the burdens of the fall so much as we know them. Um, if you look at, if we think about the opening of the um, Hamlet, you know how true that is. I mean, what an appropriate um, description of that world it is, because 
in the Hamlet, until Flem comes into that world, people live in relative innocence. They are comfortable, they're trusting. When they want to buy something, they go into Jody's store and put in something and walk away. So there's not the rivalry, there's not the envy, there's not the mistrust, there's not a sense of betrayals. People in a small community get along. And so we're looking almost at a pastoral Edenic. It's, it's like Eden. It's, 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 in some ways, it's almost not real, but that's, that's the character that it has. Um, Will Varner looks over that world, if you remember. He's, he's everything. He's the lawyer, the judge. Um, he owns the property. Um, he makes decisions. He's like the rabbi in the ancient um, Old Testament world. He, he stands in at decisions, and so he, he's a man of real power. Jody's a joke. And he, he, he's the heir to that way of life. And everything falls apart when he, when he steps into it and takes it over, when Ab comes into the world and Flem. But that's the nature of that world. When Flem comes into that world, it's transformed. Before he comes, there's this sense of, an, of, a, of a communal character that everybody shares. Everybody's one with everybody else. Um, and they have the, it really, it's really belongs to that old epic world that we left behind, you know, in our, the, Ur, the Iliad, and the Odyssey, and the Aeneid. There's a sense of a we. People are close together because they identify themselves with the land. That's very southern. They have this tie to the land. We've seen that in every one of Faulkner's works since we picked him up. Phlegm lacks that. He, he has no sense of a we. There's nothing that he does that, that isn't in absolute self-interest. He doesn't care about anybody. He doesn't bear them. He's not concerned about them. He doesn't give a thought. Remember when Mrs. Armstead comes to hopefully to collect the five dollars? You all remember these things, right? When she, after her husband wants to buy one of those spotted horses and, and he gives the five dollars, even though she didn't want him to do it because she worked so hard hoping to get shoes for her kids, I mean, God knows how long she had to work to get that $5. He spends it on that horse because the men in the story are so typically in, entranced by power. The stallions, and I, I made the analogy with young men today growing up with cars. They get fascinated with power. They want to dress up their cars. They want to get out and race them. Um, you've got all those movies, I think, called The Fast and the Furious. I've not watched them, but for them to have, I think it's seven, I don't know what the number seven, Fast and Furious, is an indication of just how much that's a part of our culture today. I, I, I'm not aware of it, but they wouldn't have been as popular if that doesn't touch, that doesn't respond to a, a culture there that, that uh, looks at the world that way. She comes to ask for $5 back. It's $5, and Flem goes into the store and buys a piece of candy, and he has... No empathy, no, no sympathy, no sense that how hard it had been for her to... So he's a man who has, who is, he, he's a modern, deracinated, deracinated man. Phlegm is an image. He's an image of modern, deracinated, uprooted. There's no roots. He's, there's no sense of um, ties to the earth, and because there's no sense of ties to the earth, there's no ties of other people who are connected to the earth. Because remember, this is an agrarian world. 
people made their money from the land, from cotton, from agriculture. It's an agrarian world. It's different from the, the cities in the north. Um, so, from the hamlet to the town, we've moved out of this um, agrarian way of life into a, a city life. And in, in a really interesting way, if, you, if you're aware of the atmosphere of both books, you're aware that we're moving from what I would call a mythic world, where there are, there are still active in people's imaginations a sense of myth and superstition and magic. When Faulkner describes Udall's birth, remember, he, I, I love that passage when he says this great ejac, Olympian, excuse me, Olympian ejaculation produced this wound, this woman who was almost greater that the culture couldn't contain her, that she, there was such a fullness to her sexuality. We've got um, Ratliff's vision of phlegm taking over hell. When Faulkner does the spotted horse episodes, remember he describes the horses in terms of, an, of almost a nimbus, a light. There's something magical about what takes place, um, particularly when that when X horse gets free, and he constantly jumps over the child without injuring it, X X son. Um, it, it's set against the light, and there's that description of the tree and the moonlight, and that that little passage that describes the the sense that I, th I think more than a few women had that. Under certain conditions, if you looked at that moon or that tree under the moonlight, it would give some indication whether you're going to have a girl or a boy. So, it was it was what we would call today a primitive, unsophisticated, uneducated, in some ways closer to the earth and rhythms of the earth and mythic. When we go to the town, that world is gone. We are in a rationalistic world, a modern world. It's defined in terms of structures. I gave you the example of Ratliff or uh, Gavin. Remember when we read Go Down Moses together? Remember in the last story when Molly comes to him because she wants to find her grandson and, and that's, there it is again. I mean, that's just stunning. God, what an amazing man, what an amazing man. Molly had some intuition there's something wrong. She's a woman. How did she come right at that moment when we just learned that her grandson, Samuel, was about to be executed? Ratliff says he'll look into it, and it just happens that day that it comes out in the newspaper that this man from Chicago was executed. And if you remember, as a, as a lawyer, he tries to do everything he can. When he visits the uh, uh, Molly's friend's house that, that night, the Worsham's house, they're in the throes of that threnody. They're all singing that lament. Um, what is it? It was Go Down Moses. Pharaoh sent my, Pharaoh took my, Benjamin took him to Egypt, Egypt, um, I'm losing the words right now, but you remember it's Pharaoh took my son, my, my um, Benjamin took him to Egypt, now he gone, now he gone, over and over again. It's so emotional that Gavin can't stand, he has to run out, because he's, as a, as a rational man, he is overwhelmed, has to get out of there. And at the very end, after the funeral, um, the burial, he and the publisher follow Molly out to the, um, out to the city limits. 
and it's at the city limits that he turns around and says, I haven't seen my desk in two days. He goes back. Remember, he's a lawyer. He's a man of law, of structures. So in Molly, we have the feminine figure who's, who seems to be in touch with realities beyond the law. And Gavin, a man of law who confines himself rigidly within the confines of the law. Um, and remember that the, how much the, the novel affirms Molly, because the last words were to the publisher. Remember the publisher saying to Gavin, you won't believe what I've got to say, but she came to me and she said, I want it all into paper. I want it all into paper. The publisher didn't understand what she wanted, but she said, I want the whole story there. The white people would never do that because their sense of respectability wouldn't allow them. Molly, this black woman, has this love that's so great that it transcends social, public boundaries. Or wants it all in the paper. The only one who does that besides Molly, I hope every, I mean, we've been here before, is the poet, Faulkner. The whole story's there. His book, in a sense, is a response to Molly. There it is, the whole truth. Gavin's one of the major figures here, and we're watching a man who's accustomed to law. He's gone, remember, he's gone, he's a PhD, he's a law student. He, for his avocation, he rewrites um, um, the Bible. He, in his spare time, he translates it. He's a man of law, but here, because he's so chivalric, because of what he sees happening between Despain and Eula, um, he wants to rescue her. He, he, he's so aware that something's wrong, that there's something so degrading happening to her because of what Despain is doing, that he wants to save her. So we're watching this man of law um, work within the boundaries of a law that, that defines his psyche, but in an interesting way because he's so taken up with her, I don't want to say erotically, but partly erotically and partly just emotionally, that he, um, he does all that he does in her defense. So when we move from the, the hamlet to the town, we're moving from this agrarian world into a, a world of respectability and structures. But once Flem enters that respectable Jefferson City world, it's almost as if it sets off all these erotic passions. And, and remember, we could, um, this is funny. The opening, the opening story, there's four or five stories that you can block off. I'll get to them in a minute. The, the first one is the, is the story of Flem as the superintendent of the power plant, remember, and his attempt to scam um, the blacks and, and pit Tom Tom against Turo. And it fails. It's interesting because it, it's, it's one of the few times people actually beat Flem at what he's doing, and these are the uneducated blacks. It's not the educated men who bring Flem down. It's uh, these men get the better of him. But one of the interesting things that emerges from that is what's going on that's, that almost brings those two men to a point of something fatal happening. Turl is sneaking in on Tom Tom's house and having an affair with his wife. So here at the very opening, we've got this adultery taking place, but it's a comic parody of what goes on between the Spain and Eula because 
the, the blacks, Tom has, unlike Flynn, who doesn't care about his wife at all, she is something to be used for him to get ahead. It, it's his ticket into the vice presidency of the bank, virtually is what it is. We know that he only got the job of superintendent because the Spain gave it to him. It's like a trade-off for his wife. So here on the white level, um, an opening is given and he, he makes use of his wife to get ahead himself. Whereas in the Tom Tom Turrell story, Tom wants to kill, I mean literally wants to kill Turrell. There's that funny description, remember, where he's on his back and they're riding in the moonlight. And he's, it, I mean, it's one of those black anecdotes. You can hear the blacks telling the story on a, on a porch and, and all of them laughing hysterically. It's, it's so funny. But, and then the, the scene ends with, the, with, the, with um, Turles carrying Tom Tom, who's twice his weight, off into space because they don't know that this ditch is coming, off into space and then dropping. And when they hit the bottom of the ditch, they end up talking to each other, and Faulkner describes them as federating. But that's that moment when the two of them come together, and they both realize that, that the violence that's taking place between them has its origins in Flem Snooks. So they do something about it. Flem doesn't. So there's a contrast between an adulterous situation, one, and another, and the upshot of the first one is they actually turn the tables on Flynn because they take all that brass and put it in the tower and Flynn loses his job. Um, remember all of the other passions that are set loose. That's just one. Eula's affair with the Spain. Maggie and Charles are mm, testy. I mean, let me leave it that way because there, there's too much courtesy between them to see much else. But Remember that scene of the, I, I, I think I read it last week, didn't I, when Maggie says, do you want me to call her? And Charles says, um, you're going to do what? Or are you going to bring that? And the missing word is whore, because Charles is not going to have it. And then Charles and Gavin, I mean, Charles and, yeah, and Gavin stand up and are ready to go at it with each other over this word, because Gavin wants to protect her. Charles looks down at her. Um, when they, when they have the ball, Gavin goes to a rescuer. He, he pulls Spain away from him. Spain takes him out of the alley and beats him up. And shortly after that, remember there's that funny scene where Grenier Weddell, um, who, who sent a corsage to S Sally, who was his flame in high school, has to go out into the, uh, into the alley again with Sally's husband and the two of them fight, and then the next day, Sally comes to, to, to town with a black eye, showing it off because she has the she's in, she's been put in a place where she can boast that her husband cares enough about her to give her a black eye. Um, and then shortly after that, we we know what happens because um, after Eula offers herself, Gavin goes away. When he comes back, Linda's I think eight years older, and he turns his attention to her. And it's the attention of a father, it's paternal, but clearly there's more. And we have to look at that. I mean, tonight I want to look at some of that. But what we're watching is in a strange way when this evil begins to work on this respectable community, one of the, one of the byproducts of it is it just sets, sets in motion all of these love interests. 
And at, and at the same time, in, in an interesting way, what we're watching is that Flem Snopes is beginning to get rid of competition from his own family. Byron will be forced to leave. He steals. Um, Flem does everything he can to put Montgomery away once he's um, um, discovered, once, once it's discovered what he's doing. And later in the, in the story, he will actually get rid of Io. He'll get him out of town. Because Flem wants something more than money. And that's one of the, one of the major questions through the middle of the novel. Um, it, it's actually comic because you know that Gavin and Raven, or, or Gavin and Ratliff are, are monitoring Flem closely, and they're both trying to figure him out. And then at some point, if you remember, Flem withdraws his money from the Sartorus bike and puts it in the Jefferson City Bank, and they can't figure out why why he does it. And Ratliff keeps coming up with all these answers. I'm mean, sorry, Gavin keeps coming up with all these answers. And Ratliff keeps saying, no, 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 no. And then there's, there's those two wonderful chapters, 9 and 11, where in 9 he says, he missed it. He completely missed it. That's the chapter. But Gavin's not seeing something about Phlegm because something's happening. He's doing something he's never done before, and neither one can keep up with him. They can't figure it out. So the whole middle part of the novel is, is really a detective novel. What is Flem up to? Will anybody uncover it? Can he get it? And all, and all sorts of other things will come out of it, um, getting rid of the snubs. And even what he does with his daughter, Linda, comes into play. So in the town, we're watching, we're becoming aware of the way in which a whole community begins to mature, to grow up as they learn to deal with this evil. It puts them at odds, they quarrel a little bit, they don't get along, um, they get impatient with each other. But in the midst of it all, there is this growing taking place. And it, and it, it really leads me, to, um, and I, I, I keep asking, you know, often at the end of classes, is Christ around? I'm gonna say emphatically, yes, even if he's not explicit. There's something communal going on, people are, are struggling, to, even though they don't consciously set out to do it, they become involved in something that can only be described as a love, a care of other people great enough that they want to keep this evil from spreading. Um, and that's the major action in the, in the center of the novel. So when I look at it, it's, I, it's Faulkner was not Catholic, not at all. He reminds me of Ishmael. He really, I'm saying that, that um, he's watching a respectable world fail in lots of ways and at the same time watching some good emerge in it in what people begin to do together once they take on this problem. So that's, that's where we are. The, the one thing that I wanted to go back to just quickly here is this. Remember that I introduced the, the, the topic of chivalric love? Court, you can call it courtly love. And um, what in the middle, medieval world was called um, songs of great deeds. Um, just. 
Chanson de geste, songs of deeds, songs of deeds. Um, now to make, make sense of the chivalric love, I want to just go back for a minute. You remember in the ancient pagan world, there was this thing called honor and justice. Those were the two great virtues of the ancient world. We, we saw that in all the epics. You know that the very first work that begins our tradition, the Iliad, has to do with this thing called honor. And what, in just an amazing way, what Homer's doing in the Iliad is showing that there's something wrong with the honor code that drives men on both sides of that war, the Trojans, the Trojans and the Achaeans. What motivates men in that book is the sense of being offended, of being offended by somebody that affects the way they're looked at. And the way they're looked at is determined by their booty, by their possessions. The greatest possession you can have is a woman, a beautiful woman. Paris took, I mean, yeah, Paris took Helen. That started the war. When you watch the war unfold, men are given booty. They conquer the other person. Whenever they can conquer another person, they take his booty, his armor, his horses. And when somebody does a great thing, they're given booty. And the highest form of booty is woman beautiful woman. That's what the whole battle is about. And remember, that's what starts the quarrel between Agamemnon and Achilles. Agamemnon takes Achilles' Bryces. And he says, you cannot do that. You've got all this booty. I mean, Achilles is so outraged that he's ready to kill his king. Um, what Homer's showing us is that what drives that war, what keeps it going, is this flawed sense of honor. That people... Um, identify honor with material possessions. The problem with that is if you confer honor by material possessions, you can take it away. So that it's purely external. How much, I've said this over and over again, how much, is our, how much has things changed in our modern world? In my reading, not at all. Not at all. Let somebody die today and somebody's going to go to court and charge a million dollars. They're going to sue somebody for a million dollars for the death of And like a million dollars is going to bring somebody back. The, the sadness of the world that it's always been that way. We tend to put, we tend to evaluate the life of a human in material terms. But if that's the way we show the worth of a person, then the worth of a person is nothing because you can easily take that away. That's what the Iliad is about. In the ninth book, remember when Agamemnon, the Greeks are losing, Agamemnon sends that embassy to Achilles and says, you can have all this. And it's stunning to look at it. It's mountains of possessions, cities, women, wealth. Achilles' response, such things I need not. I think I'm already honored in Zeus's ordinance. He's beginning to learn from that withdrawal that there's a greater worth to something that he didn't understand before. And the whole Iliad begins to turn in that moment. Remember, Patroclus goes back into the war when he dies, and, and Achilles is the one who says, I let everybody down. He goes back into the war. No rewards, no booty. He knows he's going to go back and die. And once he goes back into the war, nobody can touch him. He's the only man who admits the truth about himself and who doesn't act on the basis of that flawed honor code. And once he does, he's untouchable. Nobody can defeat him. So Homer's showing us that there's a transcendent value to the human soul. 
that there's that the f full dignity that is accorded to man ultimately rests with something divine. It's not to take away earthly things, but it is to say there's something higher than them that's a part of what constitutes the honor of a man. So remember, um, what, what we took away from this ancient world was this strong sense of honor and justice and the, um, the fact that both of them had this transcendent element. It's true for Achilles, it's true for Odysseus, it's true for Aeneas. Um, the terms change slightly. Remember when, with Odysseus, it's getting home, the nostos, the homecoming, the, that there's a changed relationship between a man and a woman. That if the relationship between a man and a woman is based on material terms, then they're back in that old w world of the Iliad. <clears throat> Odysseus comes to something new. Um, both of them begin to see each other in other terms. There's a dignity to a man and a woman that, that, that Homer's showing us. That's at the beginning of our tradition. That's why my claim is they really belong lined up with Genesis and um, Exodus. That it's a founding work that what the poets did in the natural order lines up with what we have in the prophetic order from God. But that doesn't sound like honor. Sorry? That, but that, what you described, doesn't sound like honor and justice to me. It sounded like entitlement and might makes right. Well, that's the way it was before the change. Right, you said that the honor was duty. Honor was I have all this. It right. sounded like what you described, if, if someone thought that they deserved, you know, then that was entitled, I'm entitled to it, because right. Right. I was born, what, what I often call the lucky sperm club, yep. you know, I was born, yep. you know, yep. Yep. That, no, 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 I didn't, sorry if I wasn't, what I'm saying is that, that's what, those are the terms that dictated the war, that's was the basis of it, Achilles shatters all of that because of what he does, he rejects that whole cold. He turns away from it and he says, such honor is not a thing I want. I think I'm honored in Zeus's ordinance. He refuses it. He goes back into the war knowing he's going to die. He doesn't go back in for booty. There's, there's a different spirit animating him in everything that he does. Right. He, protects, he protects Priam at the end. Priam brings all this booty. Um, I, I can't go back over the whole work, but... The reading of that work when we did it is that what Achilles does is shatter that whole way that. To right, he's he's looking at himself, saying, "I want, I respect," and and the other guys are looking around, saying, "You know, my respect the more the one with the most toys wins." There's something self-effacing. It's not even an I. There's some way. There's a way in which. What Achilles does is lose himself. He gives himself up knowing he's going to die. The, the, the way that I present it when we do it is he's the first person in that book to admit his failings. He's not defined in terms of honor anymore. Once he does that, there's nothing to be afraid of. That's one of the reasons nobody can touch him. When he goes back into the war, if you remember, those of you who read it, there's this new nimbus around him. There's this light emanating. It's as if... A transcendent light is radiating from him because something divine has entered him. And it's because he's turned away from exactly what you're describing. That's, that's the point I'm making, that that's why that's a founding book and why it lines up with Genesis and Exodus. It's a very, very different thing. The point of... Odysseus does it in marriage. Virgil does it with Rome. 
this new sense of a community among men. We've already, I can't go back through this because um, it's, it's not the point here, but that in the Aeneid, there's this sense of awiness that, because the Greeks are very individualistic oriented. Rome is a city in which all men have a place. So we move beyond the Homeric world into the Virgilian world and the city called Rome, it's a timeless eternal city. If you read that book, you know all the other cities die off. Rome doesn't. There's something, Virgil saw that there was something eternal. Um, that it meant to bring men together, to live together in a way that you didn't find until that time. So there are all of these virtues in the natural order, the natural order, that show the greatness, the, the potential greatness of the human being. That's the, our inheritance from the pagans. When Christ comes into the world, he introduces not only um, a spirit of caritas, not honor, not justice, but something that includes them both and goes beyond. Because what Christ brings into the world is a divine love that's self-sacrificing, and he offers that love to men and asks men to follow him. Remember the washing of the feet? I give you a new commandment to love as I've loved you. So when, if you take the, the, the virtues of the ancient world, this is where I'm going, and add to it the caritas, what you've got growing, coming to maturity in the Middle Ages is what we call the chivalry knight. Here we had a warrior, yeah, a warrior dedicated to honor and justice and goodness, and here we've got a chivalric knight. The chivalric knight was a knight who served his liege, his king, or his liege, who was the woman that he dedicated himself to. And in both of these cases, he, he saw his life as one of service, of giving himself for the sake of the king that he loved or the woman that he loved. Yeah? And I hope you see where this is going because if you look at the north and south, we didn't see anything close to this in the north. The South was based on England, and England looked back to these models, the, the aristocracy, the, the gentlemen. And if, you know anything about, if you know anything about the South, you know that that aristocratic culture had as its aim to produce a gentleman, a chivalric gentleman, somebody who looked out for others. Quentin was that image perverted. Quentin, in Sound of the Fury, was a, was a man that... that as Faulkner presents him, who looks back to that honor code, that chivalric knight, Christian ideal, failed. It wasn't present in his father because after the war, that whole, of life, that whole way of life was destroyed. Every time um, Quentin tries to be chivalric, you know, he gets beaten up and finally he takes his life. In Gavin, it's alive. It still motivates him. There's that line, I'll get to it shortly. He wanted to do everything he could to defend the honor of a woman even if it didn't exist. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on. You can laugh. Did Christ come here because we deserved it? I want to be really clear here. One of the great differences here, because justice was such a thing, if you live, think about the, the Israel or the Jews and the um, Muslims, they're both defined by law. I mean, what's the first thing that's going to happen if you define your, 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 your identity in terms of a law? You're going to be touchy about every offense that's given against it, and you're going to retaliate. 
the, the Jews and the Muslims will be, they're locked in a fight because they define themselves in terms of justice. What Christ did when he came was not do away with justice, he made it real, but he also offered something more. A mercy that was to given when we didn't fulfill the law. So he came to us not because we deserved it, because we were always lived up to the law, because we don't, but because we didn't. So when Gavin, when he's described as this man who's going to defend the honor of women, even when they don't have it, in some ways, he's, I, I guess to this question, is Christ present in the world? Gavin is doing everything he can to defend Eula when she is a humiliation to everybody in that town because the tendency, because of that um, adultery, is to look at her as a whore. So what we've got in this town is Flynn coming into it, working what he's doing, the respectability of the people on one side, and Gavin, who has set himself against practically the whole town, except for Maggie, because as his sister, she can't do anything but love him. Although, it is, after we get back to the Yule episode, it's really interesting to watch her, because she begins to get impatient with him. She, she looks at him as if she, he's this kid who's, who has never grown up, because um, he wasn't successful in what he was doing with Eula, and now he's going to take on Linda. Her attitude is, hasn't, haven't you learned? Um, but anyway, those are some of the comic elements that are making up the action of the story as we move forward. The chansons de, de geste are the deeds, the songs of great deeds. In all of those, in all of those songs of great deeds, remember, the Iliad was a song. That's what those old poems were. They were put to read to meter. The the matter of Greece, the matter of Rome, the matter of England, were sung. They were songs um, that were witnessing the greatness of these warriors, these heroes. One of the great um, songs of great deeds in the Middle Ages was, was what we know as the Song of Roland. Roland was one of Charlemagne's heroes. If you've, it's a very, very, if you can read it, it you, it's, a, it's a very short, it's a lovely poem. Roland gives his life up for his king, Charlemagne. He dies. There's a, he's too proud and he does a really foolish thing, but he's still a hero, even in spite of the foolishness that he shows. Sir Gowan and the Green Knight is one of the best examples of courtly romance. Sir Gowan goes on this quest to honor King Arthur and he has to undergo all these temptations of a woman, and he passes them. So those are two of the great medieval works that have to do with this notion of romantic love as it's passed down, particularly in the South, because the South was steeped in classical literature and in Greek and Roman literature. So those are some of the elements that get passed through that are, are embodied and active in gathering. Okay. And we're watching them play out in a very respectable world. Um, and you know, as we talked, as we said last week, he wants to send this corsage to Eula. Maggie tells him he can't because it would be improper. So his answer is to send a corsage to all the women. And once all the husbands find out, they can't have Gavin sending flowers to all their wives. So they have to buy flowers. So the whole town has to buy flowers. There's that run on Rouncewell's uh, flower shop and <laughs> all these girls. 
I mean, it's, it's just, it's so delightful, it's so funny to watch what's happening, um, all in the interest of the chivalric love. Um, as we go through the story, you're going to see Gavin's up against it all the time, and it's going to come out again in everything he does with Linda. So it's just, it's, um, it's really funny. But let me stop here. I want to turn to the, I want to turn to some passage. Doc, did you have something? Did you, were you? Um, any questions about or comments or observations on what's going on? If you, this is modern. This is Faulkner. Faulkner's modern. Show me another contemporary author, American, Western, that still gives a positive place to anything like chivalric love in the modern world. Show me the writer. Did we see anything like that in Hemingway? Couldn't be farther away from Hemingway's world. It's just a very, very different world. It's really funny. Any, any questions or? Oh, I forgot. I'm supposed to read Elliot. God bless. Yeah. God bless. Keep doing it every week. No, anybody? I want to look at three passages um, before we look at try to move through the some of the chapters. One last comment before we look at the chapters. The narrative structure is part, you know by action what I'm talking about. It's Aristotle's, remember the action is an imitation of, a, of the plot, sorry, the plot is an imitation of an action. The, the plot consists of all these episodes. This happens, this happens, this happens. But all of these imitate an action so by action, he means all of these visible things that we watch unfolding imitate a spiritual movement. What's underneath, what's not seen. I'm going to make a stab here. One of the ways in which we can describe the action, the plot of the town, is... Um, The, 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 the rising, Flemp's attempt to always get ahead, to climb the social ladder, sets off all these other counter-movements. It sets off in motion all of these things having to do with love. It's the very opposite of what he stands for. There's not an ounce of love in Flemp's character. But once that evil is introduced into a world, suddenly passions, love, gets excited everywhere. It's like a counter principle to phlegm. So that what we have in the town is a tension between everything that he strives for, everything that he tries to do, that sets off in motion in response to itself, a counter principle. The love gets awakened. Remember I gave the example last week that um, after the Cotillion Ball, which is one of the high points in the early part of the novel, there's that scene that I, I read it last week when, when um, 
Maggie and Charles are at dinner with Gavin, and Gavin and Charles are going to fight. And um, there's that exchange where he says he doesn't even look, he's never even looked at the woman. And Maggie says, so much the worse for me, or, you know, that I'm married to a fish or, or a bloodless mammoth or something. It's interesting. I mean, there's no passion in their marriage. It's, they're, they're conventional, get-along couples. But after everything explodes, they have Chick. A year, exactly a year later, Chick is born. So we know something was set in motion. We're watching evil enter a world and love awakening in response to it in all of its various forms. All of them. So. Okay, let me say this. Yes. When you write, when you write action and underneath that spiritual movement, that just gives me a mental picture of all these people in this town. And they're doing all these actions, but the actions cause a change in their spirit. Yes. And that's the part we don't see. Yes. We see the actions. Yes. But the people are actually changing inside. Their spirit yes. is changing. Yeah. 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 Yes. Absolutely. Um, that's what I see. Yeah. Yeah, Marcy. That's what I'm trying to say, too. Yes. Um, but, and the only way to see that clearly is to look at the way the people are in the beginning yeah. and then look at the way they are at the end because what we're watching is people mature. They're learning from each other. They're talking. Um, they're not the same at the end. But I don't think it's cerebral. I think it's spiritual. I think it's both. It's everything. Because yeah. they're, they're learning to use their minds. Their, yeah. It's everything. It's the whole person. Their minds, their hearts. Everything's, everything's called into action. They, they've got to understand there's something wrong. They don't see it. They're trying to figure... You know that Gavin... Everything Gavin and Ratliff do is trying to figure him out. They're constantly trying to analyze. What's he doing? What's he... That's in their minds. But you can't separate that from their hearts. They're, they are... Their whole being is engaged in what they're doing. And, and I'm glad you put it that way. In just in that context, one of the most important people to look at in terms of this action unfolding is Chick. Because we're watching this young kid go from not being born to four to five, ten and eleven, and at the end. And we're watching this young boy. It's like um, an initiation. It's like he's learning from Ratliff and Gavin how to live a better life. Um, I think I think one of the high points of the novel. I love it. I just love it. And it's one you could you know read right by. In the second part of the novel, when he starts to look out for Linda, and Matt Levitt comes into the picture, and remember Matt Levitt runs his roadster by the way Despain did and tries to humiliate him, and, and then he comes to Gavin's office and beats him up, walks in the door to hit him. It's not like what happened to the ball. He just comes in to be violent, to work a violence on him. When he hits him, Chick goes to a corner and picks up a cane and comes behind to defend his uncle, his cousin. I just thought that was one of the great heroic moments. It shows that a young boy is growing into honor. He didn't cower. This man could throttle him. He didn't cower. He didn't run away. He took a cane and wanted to come up and I just thought, when I, I mean, I've read that scene. I, all I could say is, good for you, Chick. Good for you. Matt Levitt turns around and pushes him, or puts the cane on him like it's a, but, but what a heroic thing to do for a young kid to, to love so much that he got past any fear of being hurt 
to deal with this guy. It's like Gavin going against the Spain. There's no way Chick could have, you know, done anything to this man. Um, so we're watching a town grow everywhere, in their minds, in their hearts, in their wills. They're becoming better people. Yeah. Um, See, I think that's where, that's where grace works. Because grace comes in when, they, when their spirit charts start changing. That is God's grace yeah, I, in there. Yeah. And, yes, you couldn't agree. And it's through people. Yes. It's not this amorphous thing. It's active in what people do with each other. Grace is not an abstract thing. It's, it's instrumental. It's real in people. People either living Christ or not, or um, it's it's something's happening to these people. It's beginning to change what they do in a community. They're starting to learn. They're taking responsibility in a way that they didn't. Over and over and over again, you keep getting. There's going to be these passages where Gavin and Ratliff said, "We're implicated. We brought them here. It's us. They're claiming responsibility." And over and over and over again, Chick keeps saying, "When I say we." I mean Jefferson. There's that communal sense again, you know, that, that, that the people can't separate themselves from Something's happening between them, among them, that's, you'd say, a working of grace. Um, here, here's one I want to just... So, when we think about the narrative structure, you cannot separate that from the action. You cannot. It's an aspect of it. As we listen to these men narrate their stories, their response to these events, we become aware that, and here's the point I wanted to make, and it goes to what you're saying, Marcy. Um, they're interacting with each other. They're a visible enactment of dealing with it. Um, and they bear each other. You can't hear Gavin tell a story without realizing he's carrying Eula in him. Chick Ratliff. There are times when he wants to kick Ratliff out of his office, you know, and, and Ratliff continually says he misses it, he misses it. No, I mean, from, from chapter 9 on, Ratliff is going to go, he missed it, he missed it. His latest chapter, I think it's 1920, he, he'll open that, I think it's 1890, he'll go, no, 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 no. He still didn't get it. He knows, and he'll, and he'll say why. It's, in fact, it's on the new notes. If you look at the notes, you'll see it. He can't tell him. One of the questions I'm going to ask next week, why doesn't he tell Gavin? He knows he's wrong. Why doesn't he tell him? So we're watching people learning to, to work together, aware of each other, and there are things they can do and things they can't do. But it's all in the spirit of answering everything that's set in motion once, phlegm, once this evil begins to do its work. <clears throat> so they bear each other. I, I mentioned this at the beginning of the class. I said, um, Fogner's not Catholic, but in his sensibility, God, I can't see anything more Catholic. He's, what happens in this book is as close to what I imagine the mystical body is as I've read in a piece of literature. It's a mystical body. People interacting with each other as the body. It's not individuals off in their isolated world. You can, nothing goes on in this town that doesn't, that doesn't involve a we, except for phlegm. 
and he's setting it all in motion. Okay, let's um, what in the world is that word? Chick. Oh, initiation. Initiate. It's getting worse and worse. Initiation in the love. Sorry, you guys. That's what I wrote down. Initiation, sorry. Yeah. So I've covered every one of these except this, and let me just touch on this for a minute. When Gavin leaves for Europe, he leaves Ratliff in charge and says, you've got to carry on now, you've got to carry the torch. And it's really, I, I just think what happens then is just delightful because <laughs> Chick is four or five and Ratliff takes him out for ice cream and he's starting to talk about what Montgomery Snope is doing back in France that Ratliff or Gavin's having the response to in France that he knows that he's running this improper show and he's writing back about it and there's, I'm going to read it in a few minutes, there's that passage where, where Ratliff goes to the Malison's home and he goes to get Chick and takes him to an ice cream parlor and he says, it's about time for you to start learning, he's five years old. I think it's wonderful, I think it's wonderful. I think Faulkner's saying parents don't start early enough. Um, and in, once Gavin gets back, you remember that they're trying to figure out what Montgomery Snopes was doing in that photography studio. And there are all those passages where they're trying to talk about it and figure it out, and they can't use the word prostitution, so they keep, and, and Chick is going, what, what do you, what lady, what is that? And they can never answer him because they can't get that explicit. So we're, it's, a, it's wonderfully done. There's a way in which they've got, a, they've got to tutor this kid, but there's some things they can't do yet, even while they're introducing him to evil. It's wonderful to watch, wonderful to watch. All parents should be required to take this class. <laughs> um, okay, I want to. I want to look at some passages. Any? We might make it on time tonight. Any questions or comments or? I love this book, it's so funny. I, I've told you that Suzanne's been reading it nightly and um, we're often in bed together and sadly not having sex. <laughs> <laughs> Me either, Suzanne. <laughs> I've got other things on my mind. What do you think? She's reading. She'd be there reading and I'll be reading or looking at television or something and then she'll just burst out into laughter. I mean it keeps coming over and over and over again. I just, it's just funny to hear her going through these passages. It's, it's, it's so delightful. Does anybody want to give me a ride home tonight? <laughs> Please. You go, I, 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 don't Please. Think you have a, I don't think you have a home. <laughs> I think that's the problem, Bob. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> right, right is not the issue. <laughs> okay, let's let's go back roughly to where we let off. You, by the way, you guys have got to help me here. Truly, I um, I was being honest when I said we we spent so much of the day putting together this summary that. I've gone through this and I've read it and it's marked, but I haven't put it together. So you're gonna, you guys have got to help me pull this summary together here. Um, I want to go back um, to, we didn't look at that scene where Eula comes to the office um, to offer herself to Gavin. Remember that um, when they were at the ball, Despain pulled Eula out onto the dance floor and then everybody stood around aghast, I think probably because he did it first of all because everybody knows about the affair, but it's like he's taunting everybody. He's just in your face. But I think there's also something suggestive about the way he's dancing, sexually suggestive. Gavin is so troubled by it that he goes up and grabs Despain and that's when the two of them go into the alley. And then shortly afterwards, you remember, he brings this suit against um, Despain. And it's, it's groundless. It's just, I, I mentioned this line. If you read the language of that chapter where he's describing the suit, you, 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 you're so aware of the legalese. He's using all these abstract, multisyllabic words that, that cover up the fact that there's nothing there. And by the way, isn't that what lawyers do? I, I think that's probably pretty clear to most of us. Um, that lawyers cloud things, they obfuscate. That's what they do. If you've got a case, you should be able to state it simply. And that's, lawyers don't do that very well. Gavin doesn't do it very well here. I think Eula is so grateful, so touched by what he does, that she comes to the office to offer herself. Um, so, go on over to page 97. <clears throat> on page 96, she comes in and Gavin has no clue why she's there. He says, you see, I still, still did not occur to me. On page 97, she says, I thought it would be all right here. She said, better here. Here, I said, do it here in your office. You could lock the door, and I don't imagine there'd be anybody high enough up this late at night to see in the windows. Or maybe, now you know that she closes the door and she draws the blinds. <laughs> so it can't be a question what she's doing. But remember, this is Gavin, because he's very chivalric, and he, and he tends to idealize a lot. <clears throat> when he gets clear on what she's doing on the bottom of 98, um, she comes towards him and he says... Um, don't touch me, is the bottom of 98. And by the way, I, I don't know if you're aware, that's the, that was the word put on the coin of um, Henry VIII by the, by the women, because the other courtiers knew that she was Henry's. So she was off limits. So that phrase, don't touch me, is usually identified with women. Okay. Here, it's Gavin who says, don't touch me. <clears throat> That's a telling phrase, 99. 
Um, now once, um, once he says, don't touch me, she says, all right. And then he says, top of 99, Manfred wouldn't really mind because just I can't hurt him, harm him, do him harm, not Manfred, not just me, no matter what I do, that he would really just as soon resign as not. And the only reason he doesn't is just to show me I can't make him. All right, agreed. And why don't you go home? What do you want here? Because you are unhappy, she said. I don't like unhappy people. They're a nuisance, especially when it can. Yes, I said, cried. Now he's getting angry. And then he accuses her of doing it for phlegm and despair, as if they had sent him, sent her, sorry, to buy him off. Um, at the bottom of 99, but she just stood there looking at me with that blue, serene, terrible envelopment. You spend too much time expecting, she said. Don't expect. You just are and you need and you must and so you do. That's all. Don't waste time expecting. Moving again towards me where I was trapped, not just by the door, but by the corner of the desk too. Don't touch me, I said. So if I had only had sense enough to have stopped expecting or better still never expected at all, never hoped at all, dreamed at all, if I just sense enough to say I am, I want, I will, and so here goes, if I'd just done that, it might have been me instead of Manfred. But don't you see? Can't you see? I wouldn't have been me then. No, she wasn't even listening, just looking at me, the unbearable and unfathomable blue, speculative and serene. Maybe it's just because you're a gentleman and I never knew one before. He, he continues to get insulting and assumes that she's there on an errand from to Spain or... Um, phlegm. On 101, um, he says, don't worry about your husband, I said, just say I represent Jefferson, and so phlegm snopes is my burden too. You see, the least I can do is to match you, to value him as highly as your coming here proves you do. Good night. Good night, she said. The cold, invisible cloud leaned in again. Again, I closed it. How does he see himself being like her, and how does she see him at that moment? Can, can you just take a minute? Don't worry about your husband, I said. I Just say I represent... He's assuming that Flem sent her. Just say I represent Jefferson, and so Flem Snopes is my burden too. You see, the least I can do is to match you, to value him as highly as your coming here proves you do characterize the two of them, can you, for a second before we go on? Anybody? Well, the psychologist there can't do it. <laughs> what? The oh. psychiatrist there can't do it. He's dumping it over here. How do you see them done?
What I'm saying is neither one of them are telling the truth. <clears throat> well, Eula's, Eula has not said anything. And it's really interesting you should say that because I, as, I, as I look at her, I don't see her as the kind of person, except when she says, I don't like sad people, because I think she really believes that, that, that I, part of me thinks that she's grateful for what he did because nobody's ever done that. She says, you're a gentleman. So when she says, you're sad and I don't like it, I think she probably feels that. But it's hard for me to see her seeing much beyond that. She's just not a... Gavin's a very thinking person. He thinks a lot. Yeah, he's thinking all not. around it, but... Well, there's this other element that I, you know, from my perspective, somebody keeps telling me and reminding me that there is, in fact, all men are purely interested in in sex and only that, and therefore that you know that's what the way they were made and built, and that's the way they're they're structured. So for him to to perhaps not want to have a you know I haven't got mm -hmm. this problem of trying to rationalize mm -hmm. why is mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. why is he not not accepting her offer, but the, the reasons I think are well they're. Uh, He's got too many reasons not to. Well, that's that's there's that's so it. much yeah. going on. Yeah. Well, I yeah, right. but yes. he, yeah. But in all of it, for him, I mean, he, he really is, he really, he, I mean, he reminds me of Quentin in some ways, but he's better than Quentin. He really, he really does believe in the goodness of people, and he really, I think he really, this is certainly Maggie's description right. of him, he wants to defend her honor even if, right. even if it's not there, right. because he believes that if there's something good in, in some ways it's like Christ. That there's a good because most of the town looks down at her. Mm -hmm. um, there's something chivalric and looks back to an old world in his wanting to stand up to invite her for dinner when he knows it's going to be a scandal and the, the his brother-in-law that's the last thing he wants. We're watching Gavin stand outside a very respectable world because that's part of who he is, genuinely who he is in the depths of his heart. In his mind, in his mind, in his yeah, mind, but yeah. in her mind too. Then, but then wait, go back because I thought your question about her is really different and a really good one. Is she doing it because she? How do you put it? She wants him to. She wants him to kind of back back off, off and quit putting her in this. Calling attention to her yeah, because this, we wrong. Yeah, and well, treating her right. like this. You know, right, like she it. wants. She's okay with everybody. You know, putting her in a closet, and he's not. She doesn't want to be on the pedestal. He doesn't want yeah, to put her on. So if he if he does this, then then she's thinking, okay, then this will protect the two men that I need to protect, my husband, because if he goes down, I go down, and my my man. Yeah. If you if you put it that way, then what you if the answer if the answer to that is yes, and I'm not saying it is, then it seems to me she's she's much more selfish than she appears to be in what she's doing. But Carl, do you have a because you've been if if you buy into belief that she wasn't being sent there by Flem, she wasn't being sent there by to Spain, right. and she didn't do it for them either. She did it because that's just what she does. She well, what do you mean by she, that? She, she was offering herself to someone because 
She thought he was a good man. But, but it will quiet everything down. I don't think she did it to down. quiet things down. I, mean, she's I don't either, but, but I think that's a really good question. I don't, I, doctor, did you, have, you were starting to say something. I was just saying, Mary saying she didn't want the boat to be rocked anymore. She wanted right. it to, be, mm -hmm. to become, I don't think that's the reason she's doing it. It would have, it would have done something like that. But I don't think that's I don't think it would have. Mm -hmm. Not with not with the Spains. I don't I don't, myself don't see it. You, watch the Spain. I mean, the Spain doesn't care about anybody. He goes he goes through right. town, he rides it, he flaunts everybody. Well if 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 they if they did do in fact, it's really funny because we don't know how it'd play out, but the next the very next scene, the next chapter, Ratliff is the only one who wondering what went on in that office. Mm -hmm. But if it ever did get out, I don't think it would quiet things at if, all. If Gavin did the same thing the Spain did, then he would quit going after the Spain because he's well, he's up at the same level. How can he if say, he did that? How yeah. can he yeah. say so? She's going there, going well. This will, you know, well, I don't think so. Odd. No. Well, yeah. And I don't see him doing it. I mean, that's the he's not that kind of person. He right. No, and he didn't. He didn't. Do it, but yeah. she, she kind of she felt sorry for him, but I mean there was a there's a lot of reasons that she's thinking this isn't a bad idea. For, I went a couple of <laughs> yeah. we 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 we, we got to go on because we I've got to read some things. I'm glad that everybody's. Um, Eula's not a very thinking person. Never has been, and and I'm and I'm saying that not negatively. That's not a I don't mean that. I'm just saying that's the way she is. She's a very sexual person. There's nothing. There's nothing in the Hamlet, in what we saw there, that gives it the impression that she played to that sexuality at all. She's just not that kind of person. Right. There are women who are. Yes. Eula's, I don't think she is, but... But, there, but, if there were, but if she is evil, like she, like, if you really want to make it a good and evil relationship, if she's evil, then she really just, he's someone that she wants to take down. Oh, Do you yeah. see her that way? Well, I'm just saying it's no. It's that's a possibility. I mean, I've you know I've 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 known a woman who was very much that way. I mean, yeah, you know, she had a, a checklist of who she. Yeah. You know. I don't think there's, I don't. I, there's not no evidence that we have when we look at everything that Faulkner's done with Eula from begin. Remember, she didn't move. She didn't. Right. I mean, it just she didn't play the things. She get to this office. Right. She had to walk. She says to Labov in the classroom, "Get your." Hand your paws off me, you hiccup. You know she, yeah. she has a sense of moral boundaries, but there's n yeah. no indication that she has the vanity of a woman who plays to her sexuality. None. No, she just there's nothing. Mental. There's nothing manipulative. No, she like she's not checking off a list. She's she. There's no indication. The only indication here is this is this is my this is my reading that her husband is impotent. He knows nothing of love. She was married off. The Despain gives her an opening for something that there's no way in the world. Flem I mean, Fleming. Wait, I, I want to get. I want to get to this. I really do, and I'm afraid I'm going to miss it because we're getting close to time. That's important in in this context. Flem is almost not a human being. He's. If you look at him, he's a flat character. He's. He's almost more like a principal. I've got to make this point before we leave tonight. He's more like a flat, one-dimensional character. There's nothing rounded about him at all. He has no feelings, no compassion, no affection. He, he is a conniving, manipulative 
he uses his mind, he's intellectually, when Faulkner describes him, he says, it's a male principle. It's a principle of ratiocination, thinking through everything to get ahead. There's nothing effective getting in the way of his mind. That's the man she was married off to. That's her father's love of her. Linda says in that, Linda says in that scene when, when Lilith beats him up, and remember she finally breaks him, and she throws her, she's weeping hysterically, and Gavin says, do you want to marry me? He says, no, she doesn't want to marry. Big surprise. I mean, what's going on with a male in anything in her life that would lead her to, and then she says, after she says, I don't want to marry. And she's so grateful when, Rav, when Gavin says, you don't have to. And then she says, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Eula has been sold off. She's, I mean, there's so much more going on to her. We've got to talk about it because I don't know if, if you know what's going to happen to her and I don't want to give it away, but it's a... Anyway, we've got to talk about her because Faulkner's description of her in the Hamlet was the town couldn't contain her. She's in a respectable world and that respectable world can't define her. She's supposed to be married to a husband who is this... He's as close to anything as evil, pure evil, as I know of in literature next to Iago. There's nothing in him that isn't self-serving or using other people. And I'm not trying to justify what she does to Spain. I'm just saying that's, there's a sexual thing there. My sense of Eula is she goes to Gavin. She's never known a man to do that. She's never seen a man do what he did in her life. I think she comes not because she thinks things through or has or checks things off it's a movement of a woman responding to a man who did a thing for her in a way that she's never experienced in her life before so there's something of gratitude and I think there's something of I don't like unhappy she doesn't want to see people unhappy that she's just so I, I, I don't think she's she's not the kind of calculating person who would say if I do this it'll stop rocking the boat because first of all, she's not that kind of person. Second of all, that's not going to happen. If if what's going to happen if Gavin? Let's what would happen with Gavin and Eula if Gavin had sex with her? He'd be a mess. Not only would he be a mess. What would happen in the? Ta- you think Despain would would treat things more quietly? Oh, I mean, things would make, thing would get infinitely worse. Matt Levitt, who's an idiot, goes into his office and beats him up. Despain takes him out in the back when he flaunted everybody in the dance. If Eula has sex with Gavin, things wouldn't quiet at all. Well, they they get worse. It depends on whether or not it gets out. I don't think she's ever saying anything about it. Does anything in this town ever not get out? <laughs> Mary, does anything in this town ever not get out? Not the way this book is No. I think I know now why she did it. I think it was the only way she, to her, it was showing gratitude. And in her life, she was showing gratitude because he did something I for her. I think there's something to that, myself. And that's um, the only way she knows to show gratitude because sex yes. has been yeah. in her life since yeah. she was yeah. three years old. Yeah. She's been, that's all she, she knows yeah. is cons- yeah. sex and men. Yeah. So how do you show gratitude? Yeah. The only way I know is to go yep, to you. Yep. Here, we've got to stop. Keep in mind this. We've got a respectable world. It's Baptist by and large. Very respectable. It's got definite attitudes towards sex. And you know from Calvin that the body is an awful thing. 
on the one hand, you've got a town of respectability who's aware of this and shocked that it's going on. And you've got the adultery going on. You've got Gavin, who's idealistic and chivalric, not wanting to enter into it. And there's that line, and Maggie sees it pretty clearly, where, where what he's doing is trying to defend the honor of women when... So we've got these tensions in this town, in these different attitudes. But the, the thing I want to stress right now is remember, this is a very respectable town, and right now it's getting shaken everywhere. And it's, it's setting up, it's heading towards something. Here, I want to, before we stop, quick, turn to, we've got only a few minutes, turn to one forty. Oh, God, there's so many things here to read. Um, when Gavin comes back, Linda's a young woman, 13 or 14, and um, remember, we've gone through that period where Ratliff has begun to have ice cream with Chick as a way of beginning to introduce him to these larger problems. Um, yeah. And... Um, we get the news already that Ratliff has transferred his funds, Rat, I mean Snopes. Ratliff and Gavin can make nothing of it. Um, and on 152 we get this interesting interlude about Wall Street with his teacher, remember, and um, marrying this young girl who hated Snopes and wanted to do everything she could to make it on their own so that when Walt starts doing badly and he needs to go to the bank for a loan and she discovers it, she hysterically runs to stop him because she does not want him taking out a loan from Flynn. We learn shortly after that that Ratliff is the one who came in and provided the loan. He gave the money, but think about this. Ratliff did it trusting the goodness of the man. And he ends, it, it turns out to be a good business venture. Um, and then on 157, bottom, that is we, or that is I, thought that it was his father-in-law who had found the money to save him till now. Well, I'll be damned, I said, so it was you. That's right, Ratliff said. Once again, Gavin's behind. I mean, he just is always a step behind, Ratliff. Um, but here's, here's where, now, the, the, the serious issue by the end of eight is why did Gavin, or why did Snopes pull out his money from his own bank. Gavin has, he's speculating in his head, he's always in his head giving all these reasons and none of them are right. On page 160, um, go on, I said, you can't stop now. What's the one thing in Jeff, this is Ratliff trying to get clear to Gavin and it's interesting because he never comes out and says it. He's just, he's raising questions and making statements but never getting to the point. What's the one thing in Jefferson that Flem ain't got yet? And I want to ask this of everybody because this is crucial. That question, what is it that Flem wants? What is it that he doesn't have that would explain what he's doing? This is Ratliff. That maybe he's been working at it ever since they'd taken Colonel Sardos's out of that wrecked car and he voted Uncle Billy Varner's stock to make Manfred de Spain president of that bank to be president of it himself, right? Logical answer. And once again, he's wrong. Um, every time Ratliff answers, he's got a rational answer, reason, and he's not getting it. 
to be president himself. I said, no, I said, it can't be, it must not be, but he was just watching me. <laughs> too shrewd, too damn shrewd. Nonsense, I said. Why nonsense, he said. Because to use what you call that $20 gold piece, he's got to use his wife too. Do you mean to tell me you believe for one moment that his wife will side with him against Manfred to Spain? But still he just looked at me. Don't you agree, I said? How can you hope that? Ratliff sees something that explains why Eula would have never gone to that office on behalf of Despain or her husband. Um, how can he hope for that? Yes, he was just looking at me. That would be just when he finally runs out of the bushes, he said, out to where we can see him into the clearing. What's that clearing? Clearing, I said? That he was working towards, all right, he said, that drove him to burrow through the bushes to get out of them. Rapacity, I said, greed, money. What else does he need, want? But what else is driving him? Okay. Um, just at that time, at the bottom, I'll be dogged of almost dinner time, he said, just about time to walk to. He leaves, and the whole next chapter has that one, two, two cents. Because he missed it, he missed it completely. In chapter 10, we get um, um, the, 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 the uncovering of Montgomery Wards, right? And what he was doing all this time, because for chapters now we've been trying to figure it out. And you all know that the reason he gets caught is because the marshal wasn't there doing his job because the marshal was in the peep show. But here's what I want to look at. Um, um, over on... Um, on page 170, what, what's... A couple of things emerge here that I think are so important. One is, as, um, as, as Grover Cleveland gets exposed, unmasked, it's really clear that both Ratliff and Gavin do everything they can to spare him. They, they try, he's, he keeps lying, they keep pressing questions, but they do it in a way that, that tries to be protective of him. I think, I mean, to me this is wonderful. They are a part of the respectability of the town. There's also something charitable in both of them. And we don't see that kind of charity in most of the people here. Most of the people are already condemned. What they're doing is trying to be careful of him. <coughs> um, and Ratliff keeps pressing this question, what do you, what do you think he does and um, um, what, what excites him and what would he be doing um, in the middle of page 171, and this is, gets to the core of it. It's Kodak pictures of men and women together experimenting with one another without no clothes on much. I don't know whether he was looking at me or not. Do you know now? I don't know, I said, but maybe you do, he said. That's what it was. Uncle Gavin said he had a big album of them and that he'd learned enough about photography to have made slides. So what he's been doing is showing these slides. Um, Over on page 172, they make it clear that they can confiscate all of these pictures and they've got enough there to take him in and Montgomery Snopes makes it clear he's not worried about them all because he can get off all those charges. Um, Hampton gets so angry with him because he's the, uh, Montgomery is taunting him that he slaps him once. And then um, Gavin says, don't do it again. And then at one point, he gets so offensive, Gavin 
doesn't mind if he does slap him again. Um, Gavin and Ratliff are talking, and Gavin's making clear that Snopes is going to come in. Gavin says, no, he won't. What happens next? Snopes comes in. Rat Ratliff is not wrong on the page 175. Snopes wants to do what he can to get rid of Montgomery. And it's clear as, as things unfold that he knows that the, that the photograph albums won't be enough to really put Montgomery away. And at the bottom of 175, he says, Snopes says, I'm thinking of Jefferson. So am I, Uncle Gavin said, of that damn Grover Winebush and every other arrested adolescent between 14 and 58 in half of North Mississippi with 25 cents to pay for one look inside that album. I forgot about Grover Win Winbush, Snopes said. He won't only lose his job, but when he does, folks will want to know why, and this whole business will come out. Now what's happening right now begins to get really tricky and profound because Snopes has come there believing that Gavin won't want to do something because once it gets out, the respectability of Jefferson will be tainted. Now watch what Snopes doing here because what is Snopes doing? He's using it to hide behind it. So something's happening right now, 176, so to save one is to save both, Uncle Gavin said, if Grover Winbush mother is to keep on getting that dollar's worth of fat back and molasses every Saturday morning, somebody will have to save your cousin, nephew, which is, um, which is he anyway? Um, um, Gavin's furious. Um, Snoke keeps saying he's really just thinking about Jefferson when, it, when what he's doing is counting on the fact that both of those men will try to do everything they can to spare everybody. Um, now, um, on 178, Snopes tries bribing Gavin if it doesn't work. And then on 178, he wants to go deeper and he says um, to Gavin, middle of 178, send that boy out because he wants absolute privacy to talk with um, Gavin. Send that boy out, Mr. Snopes said. No, Uncle Gavin said. Now the hinges of Mr. Snopes' jaws were pumping again. Send him out, he said. I'm thinking of Jefferson too, Uncle Gavin said. You're vice president of Colonel Sardis's bank. I'm even thinking of you, much obliged. At that point, Snopes knows he'll have no success with Gavin and he's going to leave. Now here's the interesting part, I think. Um, Snopes leaves, Ratliff comes in, and watch this. This is amazing. Ratliff comes in, Snopes is gone. And Ratliff wants to know what happened on 180. Um, Ratliff asks Gavin what happened, and he begins to tell the story, and he keeps leaving out details. 180. Um, what was the conversation about just before he told you to send Chick out? Now imagine what would happen if Chick hadn't been there. About the penitentiary, Uncle Gavin said, I just told you. It was about Wilbur Provine, I said. Chick is correcting him because what they were talking about was this other instance. Ratliff looked at me. Wilbur Provine, he's, he's still, I said. Remember, because he, this guy was producing illegal whiskey and he was caught and um, <coughs> there wasn't much to pin on him, but the judge gave him a sterner sentence because he made his wife 
walk this path. So the judge tacked on five years. Here, listen, he tacked on five years because of respectability. He wasn't look. he used his wife. He says, I'm not going to send you up for that. I'm going to send you for the path. There's no legal ground there, but um, he's still, I said, that path and Judge Long. Oh, Ratliff said, then what? That's all Uncle Gavin said. He just said, send that boy out. And I said, that wasn't next, I said. Remember, this is from Chick, because he's narrating. That wasn't next, I said. The next was what Mr. Stokes said about the five years, that maybe the extra four years was for the path. And you said, maybe, and Mr. Snopes said again, it was five years, wasn't it? And you said, yes. And then he said, to send me out. All right, all right. What's happening right now? What's happening here? Well, Chick is paying better attention than Gavin. And he's growing up. Mm -hmm. in, in an amazing way, you can see the effect of what these two men have had on him in dealing, in paying attention. What does Ratliff do better than anybody? He listens, he listens, and he waits, and he watches. What's Chick doing? He's paying attention. And he's correcting Gavin right and left. And imagine what would happen if Chick weren't there. We wouldn't get the picture. So it's just another illustration of the way in which these two men with this young boy are beginning to pull together this community, and particularly with this young boy who's growing over time. It's like he's entering time to become a better person. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's stop here. It's, um, I'm, I wish we had more time to read some of the passages, but um, you know what happens next. Uh, um, <laughs> hold on one second. You know that there's that scene when Gavin starts to look heavy again, and Maggie comes up to him and says, shall I invite her? <laughs> and, um, and Linda is invited for dinner, and when she comes to dinner, she comes disheveled, and the father says it looks like somebody, Matt Levin, was wrestling with her, and it turns out that he was. They fix the shoulder straps and then sit down for dinner, and then Levin comes up and does what Despain did with the roadster, and Gavin's got to go through it all over again. And then it's going to lead to that scene where Matt Levin comes up and beats um, Gavin, but it's also in that scene that Chick steps up with that cane. So we're watching... We're watching a community deal with ordinary events, things that come up, but there's this underlying, Marcy hit it, there's this underlying change that's taking place. People are growing, they're becoming more aware, and they're beginning to take more responsibility for the evil ones. It's really, you know, in one amazing sense, you can say that one of the great themes of this work is education. It's the importance of people 